But let's go ahead and let's pray and ask God's help and then we'll get into Luke 18, 15 to 17. Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you today and pray. We pray for the presence and power of the Holy Spirit to come and anoint your word. The truth of your word, that it might not just be a bare word, but it would be joined to the Holy Spirit to produce its sanctifying effects in lives and even converting effects. So, Lord, we pray that you would work through the preached word today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. What kind of person is going to enter the kingdom of God? That's the question I want you to think about today. What kind of person will enter the kingdom of God? In the verses we're going to look at today, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God twice. Notice verse 16. Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And then verse 17. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. Now notice he talks about the kingdom of God belonging to certain kinds of people. Belonging to them, meaning that they possess it. It's theirs. He also talks about people receiving the kingdom. And he talks about people entering the kingdom. Belonging to the kingdom, receiving the kingdom, and entering the kingdom. What I'd like to do as we start this morning in this introduction is just give you a mini theology about what it means to enter the kingdom. And what kinds of people, according to scripture, enter the kingdom of God. So we're going to look at a half a dozen passages real quickly, just as an introduction into the subject. And the first one is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus says there, Matthew 5, 20, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What kind of person enters the kingdom? Someone whose righteousness surpasses the scribes and Pharisees. Okay, let's move on to chapter 7 of Matthew, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven will enter. Who enters the kingdom? Those that do the will of God. Those whose righteousness surpasses the scribes and Pharisees. Those who do the will of the Father. Okay, let's go over to the book of Mark, chapter 9. Look at verse 47. Jesus says there, If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. Who enters the kingdom? According to Jesus' words, what's that? Yeah, well in Mark 9.47, he talks about people tearing out their eyes if it was going to cause them to stumble rather than entering into hell, right? So the kingdom of God there is the opposite of being sent to hell. It's entering into the very presence of God and only the people who are willing to do violence to their sin 
and fight it and kill it and tear it out. I, he's, I believe he's speaking metaphorically here, not literally. But people who are willing to deal with sin, those are the kinds of people that will enter the kingdom, according to Jesus. Okay, let's go back to our original text in Luke 18. And the story that comes right after this is the story of the rich young ruler. But I want you to notice verses 24 and 25. Jesus looked at this rich young ruler and he said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, how hard do you think it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? How hard is that? It's impossible, right? That's why Jesus says later on, verse 27, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. It is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God in and of himself. He does not have what it takes to get into the kingdom. But it's not impossible for him to enter because God can enable him to do it. That's what Jesus is saying. The things that are impossible with man, they're still possible with God. God can do the impossible. Let's look at another text. John chapter 3 and verse 5. Jesus here is talking to Nicodemus. And he says in John 3, 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So what's necessary to enter the kingdom? You have to be born again. You have to be born of the Spirit. You need a supernatural rebirth to enter the kingdom. It's, you, you cannot... If, if you are still flesh, the same flesh you were born with, you cannot enter the kingdom. The Spirit of God must do something radically inside your soul so that you can enter the kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying. And then one final text. This comes from Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Well, I'll start in verse 21. This is about Paul and Barnabas on their first tour. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. What kind of person enters the kingdom? A person willing to endure through many tribulations and not give up on Christ, who perseveres. Now let me just summarize what we've learned. The, person, the kind of person that enters the kingdom is the person who is righteous, more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. He's a person who does the will of the Father. He's a person who God enables him, if he happens to be rich, God enables him to be willing to surrender his riches to the glory of Christ. He is a person that has experienced a new birth. He's a person willing to deal with his sins severely so that he tears out eyes that cause him to stumble. In other words, he's a repenter. And he's a person willing to endure through tribulations all the way to the end. That's the kind of person who enters the kingdom. And I would say this is extremely important. Do you remember Mark 9, 47, the text we've already read? There, 
He says, unless you enter the kingdom, you will be cast into hell. There's only two options. Either you enter the kingdom or you are cast into hell. Heaven and hell hang in the balance, my friends, this morning. If you don't enter the kingdom, you will not make it into the presence of Jesus Christ, but you will be excluded from his presence for eternity. So that's how important it is, the, th the subject that we're going to be talking about today. We must be willing to tear out right eyes, go through tribulations, surrender our money, obey the Father, live a life of righteousness. And if we're not willing to do those kinds of things, the Bible does not hold out hope for us that we will enter the kingdom. I'm not preaching a gospel of salvation by works. I'm preaching a gospel that says, if God is the one that saved you, this is the kind of life you will live. This is what saving faith produces. It produces a life of holiness and righteousness and striving towards that goal, walking the narrow way. Okay? Now let's read our text. Luke 18, 15 to 17. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them saying, Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Did you notice the diametrical difference between how Jesus related to children and how the disciples related to children? There's a complete incongruity between how Jesus related to them and how the disciples related to them. So we're going to look at, first of all, how the disciples related to children, and then we're going to go over and see how Jesus related to them. How the disciples relate to them? It says, they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. They. I believe that's talking about the parents of these babies. I mean, the text does not say that explicitly, but it, it just makes sense to me. Who else is going to bring the ba their babies to Jesus but the parents? Now, this was common in that day because parents would often bring their babies to a Jewish rabbi because they would want the blessing of that rabbi. They weren't bringing their babies to Jesus so that Jesus would save their babies because they believed that their babies were already saved. They, they were Jewish parents. They had a Jewish child. They had, if it was a boy, they had him circumcised on the eighth day. They believed that baby was part of God's covenant with Israel. They felt safe and secure in, in the fact that they were Jews. They were Israelites. So I don't believe they were coming and bringing those babies to Jesus so that he would save them. It says that so that he would touch them. And if you read Matthew and Mark, it talks about him laying his hands on them and blessing them. They wanted the blessing of Jesus. Now, why would they come to Jesus to do that? Well, it's because they had a great deal of respect for Christ. Just as they had respect for Jewish rabbis, they had seen Jesus. They had heard him preach. They had heard him teach. They had seen miracles. They had seen him perform healings and cast out demons. And so there's a great deal of respect for this traveling preacher who did miracles. And so they figured, well, if anybody was a man of God, it must be Jesus of Nazareth. And so they were bringing their babies to him so that he would bless them and he would lay his hands on them. This would be similar to Jacob in the Old Testament. When he was about to die, he brought his 12 sons before him and he, he gave a blessing on each one of his different sons. Now, the next verse says, but the, just, when the disciples saw it, 
they began rebuking them. The disciples were rebuking the parents who were bringing their babies to Jesus in order to bless them. Why do you suppose that the disciples started to rebuke these parents? You know, rebuke's a strong word. You know, they were saying, don't do that, that's wrong. You shouldn't be doing what you're doing. Don't bring those babies to Jesus. My hunch, in the Bible, this is the white space in your Bible. The Bible doesn't tell us why, but my hunch is that they thought, you know, Jesus is a very important person. And he's got lots of important things to do. He's got a full schedule. And we're going to protect him from annoyances and irritations and interruptions in his busy schedule. And they looked on children as being unimportant. Jesus is important. Babies and children are unimportant. Babies and children were the lowest, the lowest uh, part of the totem pole in that particular Jewish culture. They were the ones that had, you know, no rights. They were, they were just, they were the lowest of the low in that particular society. And they didn't want Jesus to have to take up his valuable, precious time with these nobodies, these little children and babies. So that was the perspective of the disciples. Let's protect Jesus. This wasn't the first time that the disciples tried to send people away from Jesus when Jesus wanted them near him. Do you remember when Jesus was feeding the 5,000? And the disciples came to him and Lord said, Lord, send them away so that they may get food. And what does Jesus say? He says, you give them something to eat. Don't send them away. Keep them right here, and I want you to feed them. On another occasion, there was a woman, a Canaanite woman, who had a cruelly demon-possessed daughter. And this woman was coming to Jesus and just imploring him and begging him to come and heal his daughter. And the disciples said, Lord, send her away. She's annoying us. But instead of doing that, Jesus ended up healing the daughter. So the disciples were in the school of Christ. And they're still learning. They hadn't yet learned the lesson of compassion that their master had on hurting and suffering people. But they would. It would come in due time. Let's make some application at this point. A principle I see here is that Christians can err even while manifesting zeal for their Lord. Because that's what these disciples were doing. It was zeal for Jesus that caused them to rebuke the parents who were bringing the children. They, they had what they believed was the best interests of their Lord in mind. This wasn't a, like a, a, a wicked thing they were doing. They were trying to protect Jesus. Zeal for Christ caused them to do something that Jesus didn't want them to do. They were misrepresenting Jesus at the same time that they were manifesting zeal for Jesus. Do you know the nation of Israel did that? In Romans chapter 10, Paul speaks to this issue. In Romans 10.1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, for Israel, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. You understand that? They didn't understand that God was willing to give a perfect gift of righteousness to those who trusted him. And so they went about trying to establish their own righteousness by which they could stand before God. Why'd they do that? Zeal for God. But it was zeal not in accordance with knowledge. 
And then I thought of Peter. I think Peter did the same thing. When they came to arrest Jesus, Peter takes out a sword and he starts flailing it around. He's not a soldier, he's a fisherman, so he, you know, he's not that sharp with his sword. But he ends up cutting off the, the high priest's slave's right ear. And Jesus says, put your sword back into the sheath. The cup that the Father has given me to drink, shall I not drink it? Peter had a zeal for Jesus, but it was not in accordance with knowledge, and he was misrepresenting the will of Christ rather than carrying out the will of Christ. And we can make the same mistake. We can have right hearts, good intentions, and still do wrong. <laughs> for example, let's say you have a zeal for personal holiness. And that's good. The Bible tells us that we should be zealous for holiness. But a baby Christian comes into the church, and you've been able to clean up those outward sins. You don't smoke anymore, you don't drink anymore, you're not doing drugs. On the outside, you look pretty good. But yet this baby Christian comes in, and they haven't overcome those things yet. They're still dealing with those, some of those issues. And you begin to judge that baby Christian in your heart. You see, you're misrepresenting Christ. If that is a, a genuine convert, just at the initial stages, stages of the Christian life, we need to be compassionate and gentle and patient with them. Let's say that you are zealous for a particular doctrine, a truth of God's Word, and this is just something that's important to you. All of us have these. <laughs> We've all got those trigger doctrines that, man, there are, there, there are pet doctrines, you might say. And we meet another Christian who doesn't believe in our doctrine. And in our mind, we can actually write off that person as being, I wonder if they're even a Christian. I wonder if they're even saved. How could they be a Christian, not believe this important doctrine that I believe? And we can err. That person may be a genuine believer, but they just don't have light <laughs> on that particular subject. So we need to be careful in our zeal for Christ that we don't misrepresent the Lord. Another application. These disciples were hindering children from coming to Christ, and we can make the same mistake. One of the ways that we can hinder children from coming to Christ is by assuming that children can't be saved. I don't know if there's anybody here who has that kind of an idea, but in some circles, you just assume, well, children don't get saved. You have to be 18 or 21, or you have to be an adult before you can become a Christian. But that's not the truth. God can save children practically at any age. As, as long as a child can understand that they're a sinner, and they can understand that Christ paid for their sin on the cross and rose from the dead, and they have a sense of grief over sin and can turn from that sin and put their trust in Jesus, whatever age that child is, they can be converted. I love the story of this little four-year-old girl by the name of Phoebe Bartlett. Does anybody know, does that ring a bell with every, anybody here? In 1835, God poured out His Spirit in Massachusetts, and He was using a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. And in that great, it was called the First Great Awakening, there was this four-year-old girl who came under deep conviction of sin. She was anxious about her soul. Can you imagine a four-year-old? She was walking around crying, weeping and crying because of her sin, and she didn't know what to do and how to get rid of this, this guilt. And she would go into her closet and she would pray. And she started to go into their three, four, five times a day into her closet, seeking God. Eventually, 
all of a sudden, and she, you know, the, Jonathan Edwards doesn't explain how this happened, but he writes a faithful narrative of surprising conversions. And one of those surprising conversions was this four-year-old little girl. He says she became happy, and she exclaimed to her mother and her father, I'm forgiven. I have entered the kingdom. And they said, well, are you, are you sure? Do you, are you sure that you're free? Yes, yes, I've entered the kingdom. And whenever she would go around and be, her, be around her other sisters, she would burst into tears. And when her mother asked her, why are you crying? She would say, because I'm afraid sister is going to hell. She had this great anxiety for the salvation of her sisters. She began to have this great delight in the Lord's Day. She couldn't, couldn't wait for church to come on Sunday to hear Mr. Edwards preach. Now, can you imagine a four-year-old sitting right here just drinking in the Word of God as Jonathan Edwards preached? That was Phoebe Bartlett. One day, she and her sisters picked some plums from a neighbor's tree, and she brought them home and showed her mom, and her mother said, Phoebe, darling, you shouldn't have done that. That's stealing. That's stealing. You need to get permission from our neighbor before you take his plums and eat them. And she burst into tears, and her mother, she was unconsolable, and her mother asked her, what's the matter? What, what, what's it, why are you crying so much? She said, because what I did was sin. Not that she had been caught, but that she had committed sin. You see the Spirit of God working in this little girl? She was delighted with certain texts of Scripture. You can read all this online if you want to, but certain texts of Scripture that, that she heard Mr. Edwards preach on Sunday would find a lodging in her brain, and she would go around the house repeating these texts of Scripture to herself. And you'd say, well, that's just a phase that this little four-year-old went through, right? 34 years later, she is still following Christ zealously, and she's an earnest believer. It wasn't a phase. God converted this girl at four years old. So it is possible to, for God to do that. <laughs> I have no doubt that it's possible. So we need to leave that. <laughs> when, when, when the Spirit of God is working in unusual ways, unusual things happen. So let's not hinder children from coming to Christ. Instead, let's labor with all of our might for the salvation of our children. So if you have children, pray for their soul. Teach them the gospel over and over and over. Have family devotions with them. When you rise up, when you lie down, when you walk in the way, whatever you're doing, look for teachable moments where you can share the truth about God with your child. And thank God for those of you who labor teaching our children here. We don't have a real Sunday school room, but our bedrooms is our Sunday school room, and we have faithful teachers who week after week go back there and they teach the truth of God to the children. Don't, don't think that that's insignificant. The Bible says that uh, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So work at it steadfastly. God is using the Word of God in the life of these little ones. So this is how the disciples related to children. Well, now let's look at how Jesus related to children. Verse 16. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. If you were to read Mark chapter 10, you would notice that it says, He was indignant toward his disciples. And so I looked up that verse in many other translations, and this is how some of them translate the word for indignant. Some of them use the word angry. He was angry with his disciples. 
The King James says, much displeased with his disciples. One translation said he was furious with his disciples. Another one says he was irritated. But if you, if you take all those words and roll, roll them all together, you get an idea that this is righteous anger that Jesus is experiencing toward his disciples who are keeping the children away from him. He didn't like it. It wasn't right for them to keep these children from him. They thought that th these children were unimportant and nobodies, and Jesus was saying, these children are important to me. I love them. I care for them. I want them to be with me. I want to lay my hands on them. I want to bless them. Notice also it says in verse 16 that he called for his disciples in order to correct them. He called for these disciples. In other words, he was going to use this teachable moment to bring some really important instruction into the life of his disciples. Most of Jesus' teaching that we find in the Gospels was not formal sermons. It wasn't like the Sermon on the Mount or the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Most of his instruction was just as things sort of happened, he would take occasion from that thing and he would instruct his disciples concerning it. And, and I have a, a takeaway from that because when it comes to our children, we should be looking for these moments as things happen. Like, use Jesus as your model. As things come up in their life, or in someone that you're discipling. And I hope all of you are looking for somebody else you can pour your life into and disciple. Look for teachable moments. If they come to you and say, I'm just stressed out about what's going on at work. Okay, there's a teachable moment right there. What does God's word say about how to deal with stress? Or I'm just worried. I'm, I'm worried that things aren't going to turn out right in this situation. Well, what does God's word have to say about anxiety? You see, follow Jesus as the master teacher. So this is how Jesus was relating to, to children. And I want to draw out some concluding applications at this point. And I've got two things I want to do here. First, I want to share two erroneous doctrines that some people, I believe, have derived from this text. Two erroneous doctrines. And then we're going to look at the opening question that we started with. So number one, two erroneous doctrines. First of all, the doctrine that children are already in the kingdom. That babies and small children are already in the kingdom. And people derive that because they say, well, verse 16. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Meaning, that children are already in the kingdom. But notice Jesus did not say the kingdom of God belongs to these. He said the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. There's a difference. And then he explains himself in the next verse. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Do you see what he's saying? He's using children as an illustration of the kind of person that enters the kingdom. You must become like a child in certain areas if you are to enter the kingdom. He's not saying all children are already in the kingdom. He's saying that anyone must become like a child in certain areas if they're ever going to enter the kingdom. The Bible teaches that children are born in sin, shaped in iniquity, Psalm 58 and 51. The Bible says that children are, are or babies or infants are 
children of wrath, even as the rest. Ephesians 2 verse 3. The Bible says that we are of flesh until we are born again. So what's necessary for a child is the same thing that's necessary for an adult. They must be born again. And Jesus uses them as an illustration here. See, children are not believers. They're not saved simply because they have Christian parents. Wouldn't that be wonderful if you just get two Christians together, they have babies, and automatically their kids come out saved. But we find real quick that they're not. <laughs> they have a sinful nature just like us. They're, just like my friend Howard said when he got his congratulation card on his new little angel. He said, I didn't get a new little angel. They should have said, congratulations on your new little sinner. <laughs> and he was exactly right. All babies come into the world with a sinful nature. And it just in a few months or years, they will begin expressing that sinful nature in all kinds of ways. So some people assume that their children are saved unless they evidence that differently later on in life. I would say I think that's completely backwards. I think we should assume our children are lost until they prove by the fruits of the Holy Spirit that God has saved them. That's the way I would look at it. Now, having said that, let me say something that will balance something I said earlier. Earlier I said, God can save children, and I believe that. But I also think we need to be cautious about accepting the professions of young children and believing that they are the fruits of regeneration. And what do I mean by that? I have heard scores of people in my lifetime tell me that they were converted when they're five or seven or six. And then they walked away from Christ for 15 years or 20 years or 30 years. They got into drugs, all kinds of immorality. And then they finally came back to the Lord and they were just backslidden for 20 years. If I read my Bible correctly, they weren't converted when they were five. If God truly converts somebody, are they going to walk in sin for 20 years when the Holy Spirit is inside of them, convicting them of that sin? I just have a very, very hard time understanding that that is the case. I would say it's much more likely that they made a profession of faith, which is good. They learned about Jesus, which is good, but they weren't regenerate. I think that's what happened to my own son. He heard the gospel from infancy, but he was never regenerated, and that's why today he's not following Jesus. Now, he made profession. I even baptized him when he was 12. We thought that, yeah, well, it looks like Jonathan is, has a credible profession of faith. I just think we need to be careful about this and not rushing our, our children into baptism before we see real evidence that God has done something in their soul. And it'll become evident. You're not going to have to... You know, the hard thing about being a, a parent is that we want to believe every little thing. If our child comes to us and says, you know, I want to accept Jesus into my heart. Praise the Lord, you've been saved, you know. Well, wait a minute. Let, let's wait a, a year and let's see. Does that child have a, a hatred for sin? Do they grieve over the sin when they commit it? Are they anxious about the conversion of other people? Do they delight in God? Do they love to worship the Lord? Do they like church? Do they read their Bible and find nourishment from it? You say, well, how can a child do all that? Well, if they're born again, they will. Look at Phoebe Bartlett at four years old. <laughs> I believe that anyone, no matter what age they are, are going to show the same fruits of the Holy Spirit from their life. Look for those kinds of things before you rush them into baptism. And when they show evidence that God has regenerated them, it's time to baptize them. So we need, I, I think we should be a little cautious about that. 
Secondly, a second doctrine, and I know that not everybody's going to agree with me on this one, but since I'm the one teaching, I'm just going to share what I believe is the truth, okay? You test, test what I say. I believe it's an, an erroneous doctrine to try to prove from these verses that babies should be baptized. Some people do that. They, they look at these verses and say, well, Jesus welcomed the children. Uh, he wanted his disciples to bring them to him. That means that we should baptize babies when they're babies. Now, I was baptized as a baby. I grew up Roman Catholic. Before I knew anything about God, was conscious even that there was a God, I was, I was baptized. But notice that they didn't bring these babies to Jesus to baptize them. Jesus didn't even baptize adults. He gave that work to his disciples. They were bringing those babies to Jesus so that he would lay his hands on those babies and bless them, not baptize them. There's not a drop of water in this text of Scripture. There's no water here. Charles Spurgeon, when he was preaching on this text, made this statement. I might as well prove vaccination from this text as infant baptism because there's no baptism there to draw out from the text. I believe the teaching of Scripture is that baptism follows saving faith. It doesn't precede it. It follows it. And it becomes the public testimony of this faith that you have in Jesus Christ. Since babies cannot understand... One of the requirements to come to Christ is you have to understand the gospel, you have to understand your sin. Since that's not possible yet, then I believe it's wrong to baptize babies. I need to think we need to wait for conversion to take place. Remember Peter, repent and be baptized. Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Belief comes before baptism. Repentance comes before baptism. Those fruits should follow or repentance and faith should come first and then baptism follows. And this can have negative consequences be, because if a child says, well, I was baptized as a baby and I've been going to church my whole life, that means I'm going to heaven. Really? Is that what your Bible tells you? Going to church and getting baptized as a baby equals conversion? Show me that. Show me the chapter and verse for that one. That's just not in the Bible. But you, we can have a false sense of assurance because, hey, I was baptized, I go to church. No, you need to be converted and to become like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. Now let's go back to our original question that we started out with. What kind of person will enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus answers that in verse 17. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. What he's saying here is that children don't have to become like adults to be saved. Adults have to become like children to be saved. And this is a very solemn truth that we're talking about. Now, you have to become like a child to enter the kingdom. In what ways... Must we become like a child if we're to enter the kingdom of God? That's what you need to be thinking about right now. What did Jesus mean by that? I think there are two obvious ones, and I'm just going to bring out two. One of them is humility. So I want you to go back to Matthew 18, and I'll show you where I'm getting that. Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, Jesus, in what way must you become like children? Verse 4, Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Do you see the words there? Whoever humbles himself like this child, he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I believe Jesus is answering his own statement in Luke 18. You must become like a child to enter the kingdom. Well, how so? You must humble yourself like this child and be converted. Have you ever asked yourself, why did Luke put this story that we've just been reading where he did? Luke 18, 15 to 17, him blessing the children. Why did he put it there? Matthew and Mark put it somewhere else. They put this incident right after Jesus teaches on marriage and divorce. Luke doesn't do that. He puts it after the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I think there's an important reason. Remember that story? It says in verse 9, He told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and was praying to himself. He was the one who viewed others with contempt and trusted in his own righteousness. And he starts listing off this liturgy of all of the great things he had done for God. He wasn't an adulterer. He, you know, he wasn't cheating on his wife. He wasn't a swindler. But instead, he tithed of everything that he got. He fasted twice a week. Pretty good credentials, right? But he's puffed up with self-righteousness and pride. The tax collector was unwilling to stand so close to a holy man. He's way off in the distance. He won't even look up to heaven because he feels ashamed and guilt-ridden. He looks down on the ground and he's beating his breast. And he says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Not just a sinner, the sinner. Jesus gives us the punchline and he says, guess who goes home that day forgiven? It's not the righteous Pharisee. It's that no good, no account, low down tax collector that everybody hated. He went home saved. The other man went home condemned. So Luke tells us about this parable that Jesus taught about how pride can exclude someone from the kingdom of heaven. Then, right after our incident in 15 to 17, he shows us another story. It's the story of the rich young ruler. This is a man who runs up to Jesus, falls down before him, and says, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, You know the commandments. And he starts listing them off. And what does the man say back to Jesus? I've kept all those commandments from my youth. There was no sense of shame, no sense of sin, no sense of guilt. He felt like he had kept all the law, kept all the commandments. Do you see Jesus or Luke is sandwiching this incident between two different people who are proud and self-righteous. And he's doing that because verses 15 to 17 are teaching us the very same truth. We must humble ourselves and become like children if we ever are to enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, Brian, what does that look like? What do you mean? How do you have to humble yourself to enter the kingdom? If you believe you're a good person, and that's why you have this righteous standing before God, it will exclude you from the kingdom.
And 99% of the people I ever talked to or witnessed to have that as the basis of their theology. Why are you going to heaven? Because I'm a good person. <laughs> How can we be so duped? How could 99% of the world be mistaken? Jesus is so clear about this. There is no one who is good. No, not one. There is none righteous. There is none who has kept the law perfectly. All of us are fallen. All of us are deserving of wrath. <clears throat> All of us are dead, out of the womb, in trespasses and sins, born in sin, shaped in iniquity. And so, in order to enter the kingdom, the first thing you have to do is admit, like that uh, tax collector did, you have to admit that you're a sinner. If, you're, if you say, well, I'm, I'm righteous, as someone who I desperately love and passed away two years ago told me one time that was the basis for him entering into the kingdom was he was a righteous person I said oh no 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 don't say that do you understand that you've been horribly deceived you see people think good people go to heaven bad people go to hell the truth is people that know they're bad go to heaven they know they're bad and they admit it and they tell God I need a savior I need Jesus Christ to wash away my sins because I'm like this tax collector. Be merciful to me, the sinner. We must humble ourselves. We must admit that our heart is deceitful above all else and is desperately wicked. We must admit we've got a heart of stone. We've got to admit that we are born dead in trespasses and sins. We've got to admit that we have lived prior to this according to the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and are by nature children of wrath. And we have to admit that God would be absolutely righteous to cast us into hell. We deserve nothing else than that. We have to come to a low point, just like a little child who had no status in that world. We have to sink ourselves, go down, if we're ever to go up. Do you see? To become like a child means that you humble yourself under the righteous hand of God and then He will exalt you in due time. But you can't strut like a peacock into the kingdom. Nobody gets into heaven strutting like a peacock. Like this Pharisee boasting and bragging about what they've done. Nobody gets into heaven like that. You've got to come humble and lowly or you'll never get in at all. So that's the first trait. The second trait is absolute dependence. Humility and absolute dependence. Notice in verse 15, they were bringing even their babies. Now Matthew and Mark say children. Luke's the only one who tells us that some of those were babies, infants. Now tell me, how dependent is a baby? Totally. You take a newborn and you say, well, I'm just going to go put him out in that field and I'll come back a week later and see how he's doing. He's dead, right? <laughs> that baby's dead. He can't, he can't turn himself over. He can't feed himself. He can't talk. He can't walk. He can't protect himself from a wild dog or someone that would attack him. He needs everything to be done for him. He needs his mom and dad to change his diapers. He, he's like an absolutely completely dependent being. And I believe that's another trait that Jesus is saying we must have if we are to enter the kingdom. We've got to admit we are absolutely dependent upon God to save our soul. 
We have no capacity to save ourselves. We can't add a little bit to God and say, you and me, we make a great team. You do 50% and I'll do 50% and we'll get the job done together. That's not how salvation works. Did you know how? Do you know what percent God does and how much we do? God does 100. <laughs> now, yeah, we repent and we believe, but guess what? Those are gifts of grace according to Scripture. The Bible says faith and repentance come from God as gifts. His Spirit comes, it blows. The Spirit is like the wind. It blows wherever it wants to. The Spirit is sovereign. And if you were born again, it's because the Holy Spirit came to you. It's not because you were seeking God. The Bible says no one seeks for God. It's because God sought you. God convicted you. God opened your eyes. He opened your eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ. What does it say in Acts 16.4? The Lord opened up the heart of Lydia to respond to the gospel. If you're a Christian, it's because God opened your heart. It was closed before. Closed. God had to pry it open and flood some grace in there. Shed his supernatural light into your soul. See, we're absolutely dependent upon a sovereign God and sovereign grace if we will ever make it into the kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean you do nothing. Jesus said that the righteous take it by force. So there is these two things going on. Our responsibility is to do violence and to take that kingdom by force, meaning that with every means we have at our disposal, we seek the kingdom. But all the while we realize if we ever make any advances, it's because the Spirit is funneling His grace into our hearts and lives. And that's why we're moving in this direction. Two things are happening concurrently at the same time. There is nothing more helpless in the world, even than a baby, than a dead man. Would you agree? He's even more helpless than a baby. And the Bible says we were dead. That's how helpless we were. And that's how absolutely dependent we have to be upon God. Lord, save me or I die. Remember that hymn of Augustus Top Lady? Wash me, Savior, or I die. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's gospel truth. Top Lady was writing gospel truth when he wrote that hymn. So my friends, have you ever humbled yourself? And have you ever put all of your dependence upon Christ, faith in Christ to save your soul? I'm not saying, have you been baptized and attend church? I'm saying, have you humbled yourself, admitted to Christ that you're a sinner, and put all of your dependence upon Him? Cast yourself on the mercy of God. That's what is necessary to be done for you to enter the kingdom. You must humble yourself like a child. You must be dependent upon God like a child. And if you have never done that, why don't you do that right now? What's stopping you? That's what Oleg and I always ask people at their doorstep when they understand the gospel and we've explained it. We say, well, what's keeping you from repenting of your sin and putting your trust in Jesus right now? I'll just ask that of you. If, are there people here today who are not converted? Humble yourself like a child. Trust like a child and God will save you. He will. He delights to save sinners. Let's pray. 
Father, would you work your wonderful work today in this congregation? Fill us full, Lord, with the truth that we've heard, and may it have lasting impact. Lord, if there are those among us who have never been converted, please work powerfully in their hearts. Do what only you can do, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.